It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Dr. Ayana Howard once said, Women have a unique power of being able to look at the world's problems and discover solutions that transform lives and make the world a better place. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me, as always, is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Jonathan, what's our topic for today's episode? We are continuing our Warriors of God series, and our question is, what does it mean to be a warrior for the truth? The story of David and Abigail. And our theme text is found in Proverbs chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Okay, what does it mean to be a warrior for truth? And with us today also is Julie. Hi, Rick and Jonathan, and I am here to represent Abigail's compelling story that has a lot of takeaways for both women and men who are trying to be more pleasing to God. All right, so coming up in today's podcast, you know, they say experience is the best teacher, so the question is, how are you doing with that? David had pointed, had pointed in difficult experiences while exiled and running for his life. In spite of all he learned, he nearly blew it all up in a fit of rage. Our first two segments cover how all of this happened. Have you ever been overtaken by rage? Maybe done or wanted to do things that just were not good? Well, our last two segments show us a remarkable solution for rage and frustration, and her name is Abigail. So let's open this thing up. The spectacular biblical account of David reveals him as a warrior of God, as he protected God's principles and righteousness. It also reveals David as a man of mighty faults. He committed many grievous errors and sad, with sad consequences. Most importantly, David was also a man who never stopped trying to do better and inspire the people that he led. He truly was God's warrior, a man after God's own heart. But know this, true warriors for God never were and should never be limited to just men. Abigail is one of the treasured women of the Bible who was also one of God's warriors. When faced with potential slaughter, she calmly de-escalated serious tensions, saving many lives. And Abigail's love for God was unmistakable. In the example of her behavior under pressure, commands attention and respect. This beautiful woman is an inspiring example. So today's primary lesson is going to be this. Recognize your Abigail and listen well. So, you know, we don't have too many episodes about women in the Bible. We did lessons on Queen Esther and Mary and Martha, the sisters of Jesus's friend Lazarus and gentlemen, that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) So so I was excited when studying the life of David for this current warrior season to learn that he needs someone who pretty much stops him in his tracks. And now timing wise, he meets her before he becomes king. And that's an important fact. All right. So we've got a little out of order. Yeah, no problem. The, the, The four important figures in this story and the four important people, Abigail, who will appear in a little bit, 
David, King Saul, and Nabal. So, Jonathan, let's just kind of do a recap of where we've been with, with, with David's life before the Abigail episode. King Saul was Israel's first king. We are dropping into the story after Saul had disobeyed God and was destined to lose the throne. Saul had become more and more paranoid, wanting to know who God would make king over him. As a young man, David was in Saul's court, playing the harp for him to soothe his nerves. He soon became an armor bearer and then a prominent warrior in Saul's army. David defeated enemy after enemy and became very popular with the people. Rather than being proud of his talented general under his command, Saul became intensely jealous and sought to kill David on several occasions. And in the first of our Warrior, Warrior of God series, episode 1129, we talked about the beautiful lesson from the covenant friendship of David and Jonathan. So to set the stage for Abigail's wisdom and courage, now we've got a lot of stage setting to do because it is very profound. We need to first establish the preparation experiences that David had. So the first of those preparation experiences is the power of friendship and like focus that David learned from Jonathan. And just a note on the names of the cities you're about to hear Jonathan read. I consulted with my friend who lives in Jerusalem about how they should be pronounced in the authentic Hebrew. So good luck, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> so, so we drop in on the story, David is hiding to avoid the wrath and the madness of King Saul. So let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 13 and 14, and then after a moment we'll go to 16 to 18. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went where they could go. And when it was told Saul and David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Zeph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David's running. Now Jonathan believed in David's right to the throne. This is important. And Jonathan was loyal to always protect God's anointed, and that goes two different ways, protecting Saul and protecting David. So verses 16 to 18. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in Horish while Jonathan went to his house. Now, being the king's son, Jonathan grew up understanding a sense of royalty, military strategy, and trust and loyalty to others. He probably taught all these qualities to his best friend, David. You know, and, that, and that's an important observation because it puts the picture in perspective. David was a young, young, young man, and he had a lot to learn. Remember, he's only a teenager when he kills Goliath. And Jonathan takes him under his wing, recognizes him, and teaches him everything he's going to ever need to know. This is just an incredible friendship. So, Jonathan, as we go through today's podcast, we have, you know, we've had giant lessons in the story of David. Well, there's a lot of preparation happening here. So we're going to call these things giant preparations. What's the first one? Friendship and focus. David and Jonathan both wanted the same thing, to follow the will of God and to protect Israel. The ability to rely on one another of like mind would become a key to success in David's future experiences. Okay, the ability to rely upon one another. Don't forget 
that very important fact. Now, here's what happens. David spent years in exile in the wilderness in southern Judah, hiding from Saul. Throughout this period of excessive hardship, he never sought to hasten Saul's removal from the throne. When presented with several opportunities to kill Saul, David instead trusted God's timing over his own opportunity. We're going to expand on that because this is an important, important factor in the life of David, and it will figure in later on as well. Now, the second preparation for David, you know, we had the experience of the friendship between Jonathan and David. Well, the second preparation in his life, getting ready for the Abigail situation and story and, and drama, if you will, is the establishment of a godly conscience over emotion when you're the one who has the power. The establishment of a godly conscience over emotion when you're the one who has the power. We're going to take a look at 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 7. Jonathan, let's just do 1 through 3 to get started. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Isn't this interesting? Saul was off guard. This is big. David could have ended his exile right then and there. He could have said to himself, hey, I don't want to live in a cave anymore. I'm going to kill Saul. I'll be king. It's done. But did he? You know, that, and that's an important question. He had a dramatic opportunity. Opportunity literally is knocking in front of him. Now, here's the thing. David takes what is offered, but that doesn't mean what you might think it means. So let's continue uh, verse 4. We'll just pause after 4, and then we'll go to 5 to 7 of 1 Samuel 24. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give you your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So David's men are the ones that say, Look, just like you were saying before, Jonathan, look, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. You don't want to live in a cave anymore? There he is. He's unjustly tracking you. He's unjustly trying to kill you. Don't you think God has given him into your hands? I mean, how, David, how obvious do you want this telegram from God to be? So David is really faced with, okay, is this God's will? Here's what happens. Verses 5 through 7. This is really, really something. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. You notice it said that David's conscience bothered him just because he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Never mind trying to take his life. It was bothering him that he, that he did something small to God's anointed. And he looks at the situation, and here's what he does. He capitalizes on the opportunity. Only he doesn't capitalize the way his men are suggesting. He, he sees and follows a higher opportunity than his men saw and were suggesting that he follow. 
So how did David know that this extreme coincidence of Saul picking this exact cave wasn't God's way of handing Saul to him so David could begin his anointed role as king? And does this in any way give us any insight as to whether we should go left or right to follow God's will when something looks like it's right in front of us and that that is God's will. But here, it wasn't God's will that he kill him. No. How, how do we know? Well, see, for, for David, first of all, the answer was really simple for David. Since he is the Lord's anointed, I will not stretch out my hand against him since he's the Lord's anointed. So that automatically said, this is, this is territory I have no right to. But you're asking a good question. Well, when something is put so clearly and so so profoundly in front of your face, you go... It's got to be the will of God, does it? See, here's the question. Do we put our preference, do we, do we look at the experiences of our life and say, and put our preferences on God's providence and bend our will or bend our will to God's desires, not our own? So what do we do with our preferences? Is it, am I going to take my preference and put it over God's providence and say, well, God's providence certainly looks like it's going to, fulfill my preference or am i going to say that's my preference but god's providence has a higher plan a higher principle a higher scriptural concept that i should be following that's what david did i will not harm the lord's anointed it's got to be god's providence not our preference don't mess up the providence of god by putting your preference in front of it really important so let's continue David then showed Saul the piece of the robe that he had cut off, demonstrating that he did, in fact, have the ability to kill Saul. David's message was, I will not, I cannot violate the sanctity of God's anointing. David understands it is because he's anointed. He gets it from the fact that he's going to be the protector of Israel. He was, you know, deli- you know Goliath was delivered into his hand. He had um, mighty service of Israel put in his care. But all, this is not at the expense of the anointing. This is to distinguish with the anointing. He is to be going, he's not going to interfere with God's arrangements. So that's the important thing. He's not interfering. He's not putting his preference before the providence of God. The providence of God was labeled by the anointing. David himself was anointed and had respect for it, and he had the same respect for Saul's anointing. That's important. That's key. Let's go to 1 Samuel 24, verse 10, and then verse 15. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to you uh, to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. The Lord therefore be judged and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David is telling Saul exactly what God's providence is. And that's a profound thing for him to be saying. So the other thing is, this is not the only time this happened. Later, David again had an opportunity to take Saul's life, but took Saul's spear and pitcher again. He took something from Saul to prove his position. And later he told Saul from the other side of the valley, where he was safe, that I could have, but I didn't. Here's your spear. Here's your pitcher. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. A very profound faithfulness to God's providence, not his own preference. So now we come to another giant preparation. Julie, what's this one? Well, this is about opportunity and a godly response. 
So David was only motivated by that which God willed, and any opportunity that gave him his freedom or rights was shunned. Instead, the opportunity to stand for something higher was taken, even if it meant sacrificing personal gain. And that sure is strong character because that is not easy to do. No, no. And, and that's one of the reasons we look at David's life with such awe. David's first preparatory lesson had to do with the preserving of his own life. That's what, with the friendship with Jonathan. This second preparatory lesson had to do with the just preserving of another's life. You see how the preparations are expanding. And once Abigail comes on the scene, all of this is going to really, really make sense. His third preparatory lesson has to do with using circumstances to focus on the preservation of many lives, those of his men and of the people of Israel. So to get into where he was and what was happening, we've got a soundbite from King David of Israel by Albert O. Hudson that just gives us some context of he and his men in exile out in the land. For the next two years, David was on the move all the time, changing his headquarters from place to place to avoid detection by Saul's men. He went from Adulam to Cheret, and from Cheret to Keilah, and from Keilah to Ziph, then on to Maon and Gedi by the Dead Sea, and back to Ziph again. All these places were within 20 or 30 miles of each other, and it is possible that his followers who had now increased to 600 were scattered over the whole area and formed an underground movement within the boundaries of Saul's kingdom. The hearts of the people were steadily turning more and more toward David. And that's a powerful thought. The hearts of the people were turning more and more toward David because David was treating the people with great respect. His time in exile while being hunted by the jealous King Saul was a vital time of development. If it weren't for those awful days of running for his life, David would have never known the hiding places, the hills, and the valleys and so forth that his future enemies would think that they had so secretly found. David knew the lay of the land, and it would pay off in a great, great way later. So, Jonathan, another giant preparation emerges from David's experiences. And this is the protecting of God's people. Once king, David would vanquish all the enemies of Israel. By knowing the lay of the land as a result of his exile, he would have an enormous tactical advantage. This was God's providence on behalf of his anointed. So as David was defeating all the enemies of Israel, he could look back and say, hey, if you know I had been chased all over the country many years ago, I could never be this successful now. Praise God. So no wonder he wrote so many songs of praise. So Jonathan just read the giant preparation for David, and here's the giant preparation for us, the protection of God's people. We, too, must know the hiding places of refuge that our God amply provides. Life is so challenging and we need his peace and safety. We really do. And, and that reminds us of Psalm 91, verse 4, a psalm of David. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you shall seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckwork. And uh, a bulwark is a defensive wall or safeguard. Jonathan, what's a pinion? Oh, we all have opinions, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Uh, no. Uh, no Opinion is the outer part of a wing, a bird's wings, including the flight feathers. Oh, I so, didn't know that. So, so God does cover us, okay, as, as, as we have those, those definitions, even through 
the the kinds of issues of life that we typically have what are they despondent feelings financial worries the lack of time to do things we feel we need to do and how about the emotional and the physical pains of illness and the peripheral pain that we see of those who we love and i think this is a big one now living through uncertainties of a partially unknown future we say partially because we know the ultimate future but we don't get to see what's going to happen tomorrow so we look at all of these things and we look back at that psalm and god will cover us with his pinions under his wings we seek refuge david lived that that's something we need to learn to live as well you know david had been collecting many experiences that would teach him to handle kingship so let's learn with him david really did care for the people of israel How will he react when his protective care is mocked? Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode, follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes, and for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation. Rage is a very unpredictable human emotion. Cain raged against and killed his brother Abel in cold blood just for giving a more acceptable sacrifice. So how did that happen? Well, with David, in spite of his closeness to God, we have a dramatic story of his own rage exploding into potentially deadly consequences. Here's where we are. David's time in exile was not just a time to hide. Because the people of Israel were so important to him, he found ways to help them as he hid. His 600 followers acted as bodyguards to the flocks and herdsmen in the area. So we are going into the story, and it's sheep shearing season now, the harvest time for a sheep rancher. And so this is a time of great celebration and feasting because it's a time of great reaping from all of their labors. And we're going to drop in to the story of David in 1 Samuel 25, uh, verses 2 through 8. Let's do 2 through 4 to get started. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And spoiler alert, the name Nabal means fool. And the name Abigail means source of joy. So I think we can see what's coming up. Well, and and, you know, it's interesting. What's in a name? Well, in the Bible, there's lots in a name. Very, very, very often. And we're going to see those names really unfold before us. So now, undoubtedly, David's men were aware of the shearing as they were tasked with the shepherd's protection. So they knew what was going on, they knew the time of year, and they watched the activities and actions of the shepherds. And so they, they know what's happening. So it's time to be able to collect, to be able to get paid for watching all of these months. And here's what happens. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, Jonathan, let's do 5 through 8. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, 
Have a long life. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now the shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that we were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festival day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So, you know, David is is approaching. We're going to get to, to some observations in a moment. But, you know, something strikes me here. He said, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. So he sends his young men to Nabal and he gives them the speech. He tells them, here's what you say. So he is letting his young men know these are the words that you respectfully repeat. They're my words, and you give them to Nabal. This is important, and it shows the humility. Let my young men, therefore, find favor in your eyes because we have been with you all this time. So when we look at what happened here, there are several things that we can observe about what David did right. What are they? Well, first, he sent 10 men, not an entourage, which was enough to carry back a modest amount of provisions. They were to be courteous, reasonable, and to request only what the owner thought equal with the protection services rendered. This protection helped to ensure a profitable shearing season. Well, and, you know, he waited until the time of feasting. So he knew that food would be plentiful and that the property owner traditionally would share liberally with the people around him. And they asked Nabal how well his people got along with those in David's camp. Nabal's shepherds enjoyed the protection of David's men from bandits and probably marauding Philistines. You know, just a side note, Nabal celebrated sheep shearing at a time when the rest of Israel was mourning the death of the esteemed prophet Samuel. We have a storm here <laughs> um, back in 1 Samuel 25, 1. So it's possible that this wasn't even in good taste you know, that he was throwing this ginormous party instead of, you know, making it a little smaller. So this would be further evidence of his base character. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of evidences of his character coming out. So the, the interesting thing is, though, David is approaching this opportunity, this contractual agreement with great respect, with great humility, and he has his men so well-trained, do a good job, be respectful all through all of those months of quiet protection, and then ask humbly what's what. And this would be something culturally appropriate. This is something that they would have done and that they would have expected. So it's nothing out of the ordinary. Right, right. And again, part of the deal, if you will. So, Jonathan, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, verses 9 through 13, we'll break it up into a few pieces. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. Okay, so they speak to Nabal. They do, they say what they're supposed to, and it says, and then they waited. And you got to ask, okay, if they're speaking to him, he makes them wait. Why does he make them wait? He knows they're coming because that's part of the contractual agreements so they get there and they say the things in a really humble way and Nabal makes them wait why would he do that probably because he was not a nice guy and he's probably trying to figure out how can I get out of this I really don't right. need these guys I don't even like these guys I don't <laughs> want these guys you know and, and 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 this is what happens sometimes so 
here, here's what happens. Here's, here's Nabal's answer, verses uh, 10 and 11. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? <laughs> and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I don't know? Well, okay. You, you know what? You know what? Who is David? There's lots of servants trying to get away from their masters these days. Think about the base character that would say those things. Go ahead, Julie. Yeah, David was so popular, it would have been impossible for him not to know who David was. But Nabal's insulting him, implying that he's nothing but this rebellious runaway slave. And you see what he's saying? My bread, my water, my meat, I slaughtered, my shearers. The one thing he's not doing is saying the bread that God gave me, the, the water God gave me, the sheep that God gave me. It's all me, 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 I, I, I. So you can see his heart is, he's a fool. And, and, you know, we can say that because they say it in the scriptures, okay? So we're actually repeating scripture, and this is important. And here's what happens now. David is going to react with anger, and he's going to react with vengeance, and he's going to get ready to slaughter Nabal and his entire household. We look at um, the verses 12 through 13, 12 to 13 of 1 Samuel 25. So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. So he is no longer sending a little little group of 10. He has got 400 men, and he is leading the way, and he's had enough because this was not right. This was not righteous. This was not equitable. This was nothing like a wealthy man in Israel should be acting. And David was about to go in his own way, and in his own mind, I'm going to go fix this. So now David rationalizes the why of his anger, and he promises, he promises cruel retribution. We go to 1 Samuel 25, 21 and 22. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. So David is going out there, and he's saying, he's, he's repeating in his mind, This is why I've got my sword. This is why I've got 400 men with me. Because he, uh, he is disregarding all of the efforts that we put in, in for him over these many months. And continuing in verse 22, may God do so to the enemies of David and more also. And, and Rick, that's a kind of a confusing statement. It means may God bless all of my enemies with abundance as Nabal has been blessed. And continuing on with the verse, and if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. So David, David is really in a r- rough spot here. And he says, you know, if I leave Nabal alive and his men, may God bless all of my enemies the way Nabal would be spared. So he's, he's putting it all on the line. He's saying, this is what's going to happen, I promise. So David is, we are witnessing David caving into rage. This is contrary to all of his previous preparation lessons. Remember, all of his previous lessons taught him respect and sacredness and godliness and righteousness and justice. Not now, not here. Well, in our world today, 
when people get frustrated and are angry and they're protesting and violence erupts, people say, oh, you can't blame them. Well, you can blame them because nobody should ever do violence. You can understand the anger, but it is never an excuse for bad behavior. David had that same kind of anger. He was feeling, my men are hungry. They've worked hard for months to protect your men, your flocks, and how's it supposed to work here? And he overreacts. Well, he does. He does overreact. Now, there's justification in his anger. There's no question about that. But there is not justification in his overreaction. The interesting thing is, let's pause, let's back away from this story for a moment. David compassionately, remember we talked about King Saul? He compassionately spared King Saul's life when Saul had been harassing and trying to kill David for years. Nabal, a man that David never met, slights him, and David's ready to show no mercy on him and his household. You think, well, wait, how is such a dramatic change possible? So again, let's look at some observations on on how David got to this place in his own mind. Well, you know, maybe David perceived Saul as his equal or superior because they were both anointed kings, and maybe he perceived Nabal as inferior. And that makes me think, do we make allowances for some but not for others? Hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, we do. <laughs> um, and, you know, when, it's really telling when he said, well, he has returned me evil for good. David used that to justify the death of the household. But that would have been murder. Then we'd have to ask ourselves, do we justify or rationalize our bad behavior? Hmm. And David, Nabal's sin caused David to sin. David is responding sinfully to the sin of another. Do our actions open a door for others to sin? I hope not. Well, yeah, well, and, and, and this is this is a big thing because you know what we're looking at here is you know we said that Nabal's uh, sin caused David to sin. What Nabal's sin actually did is it opened a door wide for David to step through. David had a choice every moment along the way as he stepped through that door of intention. And as he stepped through that door of intention, it turned to a door of preparation. And then it turned to a door of action. So Nabal's sin opened this door wide, and David stepped through the first part, the next part, and the next part. And the next thing you know, he and 400 men, armed and ready, are going to visit Nabal. You know, this is rage. This is rage. In our day, you've heard of road rage? You've heard, have you ever been put on hold and routed through an automated phone system? (laughs) (laughs) I was on hold just this morning screaming, representative, into the (laughs) phone after the system had hung up on me twice before that. You know, you can flip on a dime if you aren't keeping things in check. And road rage is a big deal. People have died over that where a perfectly normal drive turns into murder because we're not thinking. Yeah. don't have that that space. And whatever it is, sometimes some things bring out our raw emotions. There, there's a great quote here from Viktor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And, you know, Viktor Frankl, he was a Holocaust survivor and became an educator and an author. So... Between stimulus and response, there's a space. This applies to so many different applications. So I want to give some homework to our listeners. 
if we could just memorize this quote and apply it, we could overcome a lot because it gets our mind wrapped around righteousness. Between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space is our power to choose our response. <clears throat> now, guess what? What? Finally, Abigail's going to appear. Okay. <laughs> Finally. So Abigail finds out what just happened and the truth about David's men. So we're going to start off Abigail's story in 1 Samuel 25, 14 to 17. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. See, now, the interesting thing about this is the men of Nabal tell Abigail exactly what David's men told Nabal. They were respectful. They protected us. They were like a wall for us. They gave us security that we would have never had. We didn't have to worry because they were there. That's their report to Abigail. So you know that they did a really wonderful job of being protectors for them and their sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Now, think about it. This is the servants of Nabal talking to Nabal's wife, telling Abigail, Nabal's wife, that their master is a worthless man. Okay? So you see the lack in Nabal's character, and you see the general knowledge of that lack, and apparently a lack of fear to be able to speak it. Yeah, and they must have seen, they must have predicted what was going to happen. They had to have heard how terrible Nabal treated Jonathan's yeah. men. They knew, he, they knew what was happening. They had to get to Abigail, do something, or else we're toast. Yeah, yeah, and so they, they're pleading with Abigail. And so Abigail comes on the scene. What's the giant preparation here? Godly actions are always appropriate. With Saul's madness, David stood up to his own frustration at being exiled by taking action to protect God's anointed. He never took vengeance. With Nabal, David sought evil retribution over a broken agreement and insults. In his rage, David did not apply a godly response to a common man. So I have three rhetorical questions for us. One, do we get angry when people don't react the way we think they should? Two, can we fall prey to personal fleshly insults we don't deserve? And three, do we use them as a rationalization to drive us to sin? So let's look at Saul. Saul loved David, but overcome with pride and jealousy, he sought to kill David. So let's look at David. David was hunted, hiding, weary, hungry, but every time he stood up in faith with God's spirit, he refuses to take vengeance on Saul when he had the opportunity, but yet this incredibly patient and humble man is put off guard by an unexpected personal insult by Nabal. This can happen to us because we get angry when people don't react the way we think they should. And as hard as we sacrifice, we can fall prey to personal insults that we don't deserve and they can drive us to sin. So again, 
I think the homework is memorize. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is the power to choose our response. That's what David needed, that space. Okay, that's an important perspective. And, you know, when, when we look at sin and we look at our, here comes some Rick humor, so I'm just bracing you. You know, we look at our circumstances. What we don't want to be is helping other people uh, go down the wrong road. We don't want to be an enabler because that's what Nabal was. He enabled David oh, to go down that. I'm sorry, I couldn't <laughs> resist it. No, no, that was good. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> Unfortunately, David isn't hesitating to burn this whole thing to the ground because of an insult from a fool. Rage is driving David to commit a horrible sin. What can be said or done to diffuse such anger? It's been a privilege and exciting interacting with our listeners all over the world. Reach out to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com. In addition to always continuing the conversation on our website, in social media, and our YouTube channel. Learn more about becoming a Christian Questions Ambassador. There are several impactful ways you can help us continue to spread the gospel message. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Support CQ in the top navigation menu. Join our incredible team of volunteers and find out more. Now back to Rick and Jonathan. Because we all have the ability to rage over things, we all need to pay attention here. Even though David had done an honorable job of caring for his men and for the people of Israel while in exile, his rage at Nabal put his base human nature right out there on display. And like David, we have the same potential. Are we willing to put our base human nature out there on display for everyone? Because that's what rage does. And Nabal was a wealthy man. When David lived in caves, David was very much a man of honor, and we can plainly see that Nabal was not. Could his wealth have destroyed Nabal's humanity? You know, it certainly had the potential to participate in that destruction. While wealth can bring advantages of freedom and control in our lives, it comes, like everything, with a cost. Research has linked riches with having less empathy for others, as well as, and this is interesting, as well as feelings of entitlement to the detriment of others. Wealth is also associated with unethical tendencies. This is shown in studies of shoplifting and tax data from the Internal Revenue Service. Nabal was a selfish stingy, wealthy man whose heartlessness was about to get everyone killed. Unlike her foolish husband, though, Abigail, Abigail had a godly heart and a godly character. So, little Bible trivia time. Abigail, I found this interesting, is one of only three women in the Bible described as having a beautiful appearance. The others are Jacob's wife, Rachel, in Genesis 29, 17, and Queen Esther in Esther 2, 7. So three, three women who are beautiful. All right, so we're going to see now Abigail takes action, makes a correct assessment, comes up with the correct plan, and says the correct words. So let's start. Abigail calmly takes action, and this implies that she had a well-thought-out plan, and she had to do that quickly once that servant was talking to her and reporting in. We see this in 1 Samuel 25, 18, and 19. 
Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. So she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So she's loading up with the food that Nabal should have given the men. So she took action. But now she's going to make a correct assessment. And Abigail perceives that her foolish husband created this dangerous scenario for the whole household. And I found this just beautiful proverb, Proverbs uh, 25, 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. <laughs> oh, right. yeah, yeah, that's very uncomfortable. Either way you look at it. And yeah, it says she both. <laughs> she could not rely on her husband to fix this situation. And Abigail did not try to appeal to her husband. I think that's interesting. Knowing it would be useless and he would just get angrier and dig in on his position. So that really showed brilliance and profound courage, you know, in her display here. And immediately... Um, but thoughtfully, methodically, she took action, um, not worrying, just doing. So what we're seeing is the, the, she takes action, she assesses the situation. And see, assessment, whenever you're able to assess a situation so well, it shows you wisdom. And wisdom is f- hard to find. It's, it, the, the, the characteristic of wisdom is, is not something that just pops up everywhere. It is something when you see it, you need to look at it and pay really close attention. And she's displaying this ability, this wise ability to counteract something that is going to be utterly tragic and traumatic. And she's stepping in the way of this train that's out of control. So now we go back to 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 and 24. We'll pause and then we'll go to verse 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. Continuing verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Now, you know, you see the humility and the wisdom displayed here, and she is coming before David the way David's men came before Nabal. They had that humility. Whatever you desire, you know, use your best judgment. So she's giving exactly what David was giving. There's an amazing connection. Again, amazing wisdom here. So let's go back to verse 25. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So that tells us she had the correct plan to go after David. And so she personally and humbly delivers the food personally. She doesn't send anybody. She has some helpers with her, but she comes herself. And this really strikes me as a woman. You know, she was unafraid to meet David and literally hundreds of his men who've been wandering the wilderness for years. She puts herself in a very dangerous position and somehow she trusted him not to hurt her or allow her to be hurt. She also humbly mediates and apologizes for her husband's bad judgment, admitting that he's a fool. And, you know, by the way, she obviously knew who David was, which tells us that Nabal knew 
knew very full well who David was because here Abigail is a woman. She is uh, treating him like the anointed king that he is. But she says something really unexpected. Remember, she said, on me alone be the blame. So here Abigail is completely innocent, but she accepts 100% of the blame. And by doing this, she not only saves Nabal and his household, but we're going to see coming up soon, she also saves David. And this reminds me of Jesus. He was 100% innocent, yet he accepted all of our sins as a ransom substitute. You know, that gives a really powerful picture when you look at all of these things on me alone be the blame um what she's doing is saying it's you and i here forget nabel it's just you and i and your intentions and i am here to show you the humility of this household forget what you've seen your intentions need to look at me and how i am representing this household because I am the representative. And she says, forget my husband. And you know, very, very powerful woman to be able to do that, especially in those days. So as we go through the rest of these scriptures now, uh, Julie, you're going to be doing the reading because really it's, it's, it's Abigail speaking. And we want to get the sense of what she's saying and how she's saying it and, and the sense of her wisdom and the sense of her compassion and the sense of her desire to be godly in dealing with a potential tragedy. So we're going to go to 1 Samuel 25, uh, 26 through 31. We're going to break it up into several pieces. So, Rick, she refers to David as her Lord, but also talks a lot about the Lord Jehovah. So for the sake of the audio, I'm going to read David's name when she's referring to him as Lord, so it isn't confusing when you listen to the reading. So we'll continue with this 1 Samuel 25, 26. She says, Now therefore, David, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek evil against you, David, be as Nabal. Now this is interesting because remember back in verse 22, and that's in the last segment, David said, if he didn't strike Nabal down, then may all of his enemies be blessed as Nabal was. Here Abigail is speaking the same language. Here Abigail is saying, may all of David's enemies be as Nabal, unable to hurt you. So using the same example, she is being wise in terms of addressing a really potentially disastrous situation. You're right, Rick. When she was talking to David, she was talking to him with the same language he was using with his men. This is very significant. She was taking the exact thinking of David that went off the rails and used the same kind of approach to put him back on the rails. Yeah. This was like a cultural approach. It was. It was. May, if, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, may such and such happen. So she's using that same cultural approach that David, the anointed one, used to diffuse his rage. This is enormous. So, Jonathan, obviously, when you have something enormous, you need a giant preparation. What is it? That's right. Always pray for righteous results rather than rage-filled results. Think about this. Pray for righteous results, not preferential results, righteous results, rather than rage-filled results. So, Julie, let's continue with 1 Samuel 25. Let's do 27 and 28. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought you, David, be given to the young men who accompany 
company you, please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. So she's giving all this food that she had packed up. All right. So though she did no wrong, she took full, unmitigated responsibility for Nabal's poor behavior. And, you know, that taking responsibility means that I'm absorbing the blame, but I'm also making it right. And we continue in the middle of verse 20. I cut you off there. Go ahead, Julie. For the Lord will certainly make you an enduring house because you are fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life? Then the life of David shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. So she is now showing her honor and respect for David because she realizes who he is. And she's lifting his reputation, his destiny up before him. It's really powerful, the wisdom that she's applying. And you know what? She didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this. This was not something that she could sit for weeks and say, okay, then I'll say this. And then (laughs) I should probably look into this. She had to be on it and it shows that her character was in the right place. Let's finish verses 30 and 31 of 1 Samuel 25. And when the Lord does for David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to you, David, both by having shed blood without cause and David having avenged himself. When the Lord deals with you, then remember your maidservant. So... What's happening here is she's saying, when you're appointed as ruler over Israel, as you will be, this is not going to hurt you, because this would have hurt you if you went through with your rage. She says the correct words. If she had been there when the man asked for provisions, they would have received them. She predicts David will be king of Israel. God would exalt him. How about that? Hmm. She reminds David that he's fighting the Lord's battle. And she attributes all the good that would come to David would be because of God. And she also helped David to know he was in God's care. Rage-filled murder would be an action against God. And you remember when she said, but the lies of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She uses imagery to remind him of his victory over Goliath because it was won because of his unfailing focus on God and his principles. And also, you remember she said, when you have success, remember me. And he does that. And we're going to see that at the end of the story. But I think your your points about how, you know, Jonathan prepared him, his best friend, Jonathan. And here we have another beautiful example of what will become friendship with Abigail. Yeah, and and Jonathan prepared him, and then there were those preparations of the preserving of life, the single life of Saul, and then the life of, 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 of his men. And so what you see is David was prepared long before the Abigail experience, and there were things that were familiar that would help put things in place. So Jonathan, what's our final giant preparation for this segment? All of David's preparation lessons culminate with this. By responding with our godly conscience, we can overcome rage by assessing, planning, speaking, and acting with courage and conviction. And also, you know, Rick, you you mentioned it. Because of the relationship of mutual trust between David and Jonathan, that prepared David to receive Abigail. How did Abigail approach David? With mutual trust. Mm -hmm. 
They had the same objectives and she knew he was going to be king. Jonathan's influence on David made Abigail's influence much easier to recognize. You know, and they both knew he was going to be king. And they both had such incredible respect for that. And Abigail here, uh, Jonathan was there to protect and preserve David. Abigail was to protect and preserve David as well on a whole different level, as well as the people around. So this is really a remarkable, remarkable account of a wise, faithful, godly, reverent woman in the face of great, great tragedy. You know, we know Abigail is smart and diplomatic. The big question is, will this work with a man like David? Abigail met David with courage and respect. Would David be a man after God's heart or his own? Our YouTube channel has a lot going on. Go to ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Featuring new releases every week. Check out our playlists like CQ Kids, Moments That Matter, and CQ Bible 101. Plus, we have even more new series content planned to roll out soon. So stay tuned at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Abigail's attitude, action, and words provided the needed space for David to snap out of his rage. Nabal had acted out of arrogance and ego, and David had chosen to be on the same path. It was now up to David to decide how to lead his men. He could lead them into sin or to follow God's providence. David had a choice. We always have a choice. And David was faced with really a life or death circumstance. So here's another amazing Viktor Frankl quote we need to memorize. When we can no longer change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. When we no longer can change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. And that is exactly what David did. And, you know, to his credit and to Abigail's credit for guiding him as to how to do that, as to why to do that. And here's what happens. We're telling you what happens. David not only listens, he clearly comprehends the gravity of the entire situation. And God is blessed first. That's really what happens here. It's, okay, let us bless God first before we do any other actions in our lives. 1 Samuel 25, verses 32 to 35. Let's just take verse 32 for right here, Jonathan. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. So David says, and think of the beautiful words here, the, the power of these words, when David had ridden in, armed with 400 men, to wipe out all the males in that household. He says, Blessed be the Lord God, who sent you this day to meet me. David is, 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 is realizing that I owe everything to God. Then David shows humble thanks for Abigail's wisdom and courage, and that's shown to us in verse 33. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Thank you for saving my life. That's what David is saying. Blessed be your discernment. And you, blessed be you, you have kept me from a gross sin, a gross error. He goes further. He then humbly confesses the depth of his own sinful rage and decision, and this is found in verse 34. 
Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would have not been left to Nabal unto the morning light as much as one male. You know, it's interesting. David could have started to say, you know, as I was writing up, I had second thoughts. And, you know, you know, slaughtering them all, maybe that was a little overboard. Maybe I should just take Nabal's head and be done with it. Maybe, you know, he, he says to Abigail, if it weren't for you, I would have done exactly as I had promised. He is being painfully honest to say, that's how far off I was. He is not backing off one iota because he knows his own heart and he's willing to confront it. Now, after all of these things, all of these admissions, all of these recognitions by David, only then does David receive Abigail's gifts. And this is important. He put it all in perspective first. He made sure God got the glory. He made sure Abigail was recognized. And he made sure his sins were public. And now he receives Abigail's gifts. And that's in verse 35. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. And again, I've listened to you. Why? Because you were wiser than I. Why did I listen to you? Why? Because you were more reverent than I. Why did I listen to you? Why? Because you more, were more righteous than I. And I recognize it and I freely admit it. It has been said that David committed many sins in his lifetime, but never the same sin twice. And that is really something quite remarkable. God overruled, and David admits that God sent in Abigail to redirect him from this violent sin. This reminds me of the quote we said in the first podcast of this warrior series, Friendship is a Sheltering Tree by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. You know, Jonathan, we said, was one of his redwood trees, but here's Abigail as a sheltering tree as well. And he, here he insisted that he and his men wouldn't kill Saul after several opportunities, but he's ready to road rage this thing, hmm. you know, a personal affront. And here's another example of David being humble enough to recognize his sin and change his attitude. So while we've been looking at the good example of Abigail, we also need to see the good example of David in the end. So it's kind of a two for one lesson here. It's a beautiful piece of scripture. Now, the theme text really fits well here. Proverbs 25, 11 and 12. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And to reprove means to express disapproval, criticize, to convince, and correct. The Bible translates this Hebrew word as correction, chasten, plead, and others. So Abigail was the reprover and David was the reproved, the listening ear. And Abigail did right by speaking out boldly. And David was in tune enough because of all his preparations to know that her words were divinely appointed. So, Jonathan, as we look at this, and in light of the theme scripture, what's our next giant preparation? Well, when we are the reprover, do we respectfully stand for righteousness like Abigail? When we are the ear, do we humbly accept apples of gold in settings of silver when we are being selfish and impulsive? So the question is, in our lives, we can be either, and how do we handle being on one end or the other? Are we gracious? Are we humble? Are we reverent, whether we're doing the reproving or whether we're doing the listening, whether we are that listening ear? You know, the scriptures, New Testament is very plain, very straightforward. Do not... 
do not render evil for evil. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So let's finish up this beautiful story. Abigail returns home after, you know, David's expressed all these lovely words to her, and she finds Nabal drunk and feasting, so she's smart enough to say nothing. And this is in 1 Samuel 25, 37 to 42 is what we'll end up reading. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Isn't this interesting? David didn't have to kill him. The Lord's providence took care of this, and they think it's probably maybe a heart attack or a stroke. And we don't know if that was brought on by maybe the fear of the danger once he realized what he put his household through, or maybe he was, knowing him, he was probably just mad at his wife, or that maybe he was humiliated by her wisdom and her actions So David's humble and grateful attitude would continue in verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. David praising God for sending Abigail to turn him around. You know, and that's a wonderful thing. He's praising God for sending Abigail. David now seeks to have such wisdom and courage by his side. It's not just enough um, for him to acknowledge what Abigail did. He now wants her by his side. And we continue the reading. Uh, Jonathan, go ahead. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to take you as his wife. She arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Okay. Well, (laughs) (laughs) she's humble, but but I did a double take when I read, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servant. So although this last sentence might be unsettling today, she is showing reverence to the future king, and this would have been culturally appropriate. So it's like she's saying, in effect, I will be a good wife to you. And, you know, we remember Jesus washed his disciples' feet. So it's a, it's a, it's, again, it gave, it gave us some insight into her, her heart and the kind of wife that she would be. And continuing in the verse, Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So you can see the process. The humility of Abigail wasn't just a show to keep David from destroying the people. It wasn't made up. It was legitimate. It was heartfelt. It was deep. Her reverence for God wasn't just a show to show David that, hey, I worship the same God as you. You see that reverence here in terms of her willingness to serve, to fulfill the responsibilities of a wife in those days. You know, her wisdom wasn't lucky. It was a result of a mature character. And that is, shows us the incredible depth of this woman, Abigail. It's interesting, side, side note, it's, it, it's possible that David inherited Nabal's vast estate because of this marriage. It doesn't, the scriptures don't tell us, but it is possible that that is what happened. 
You know, I was wondering, why do we get to witness such a detailed account? Because David had at least eight wives who are virtually unknown. And perhaps the purpose was to show that Abigail was his greatest influence for good because she helped David remember that he was God's anointed. And in turn, this allows us to learn how to be both a noble reprover and how to be a humble ear. So you get the sense that Abigail is a balancing influence for David, just like Jonathan was, only at a, at a different point in his life when he was completely out in exile. She kept him on the straight and narrow and taught him the give and take of what would be necessary when he later becomes king. So now let, let's jump to the New Testament for a moment. When we think about Jesus talking to his apostles, the same principles apply here. Matthew 26, 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, that's one of the problems that we all have all the time in our lives. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our spirit can be strong in the Lord, but our flesh gives in to worldly weakness. And you see that in David's experience, the utter rage that he experienced. Harsh trials mold our character, and we endure with the help of of the Holy Spirit. Our battle is against forces both large and small every day. These include insults and indignities to us as human beings. God may give us an Abigail to keep us from the sin of trying to defend our pride and lead us into a death experience. That's an important thing. God may send you an Abigail when you need one. You've got to pay attention to see when that Abigail may be arriving. Jonathan, our final giant preparation. When in a downward spiral of human frustration and anger, be willing to listen to an Abigail. Recognize your Abigail and listen well. And you know, some people we have complete patience for, and we have no problem making excuses for or ignoring their bad behavior. It's like, oh, that's just Uncle Bob. (laughs) But there's others that for whatever reason rub us the wrong way or to whom we don't immediately attribute a pure motive. And we're especially sensitive. And that fault's our own. When someone acts or doesn't act in the way you expect or says or doesn't say what you want them to, we can react viscerally and improperly. And even an improper thought is a sin, expressed and acted upon or not. So we advise everyone to recognize their trusted Abigail, because each decision we make can change our lives for the better or the worse. So Rick and Jonathan, let's Rick, who is your Abigail? Well, you know, I have, I've, I've actually had several Abigails in my life. Uh, one Abigail from my early Christian walk was my Uncle Steve, who was a dedicated Christian, and he had a way of dealing with the practical issues of life that did not make sense to me. You know, I, I have a, a passion for Scripture and a passion for God and a passion for things. And, and when I was younger, it was much more of a, I won't say out-of-control enthusiasm, but really on the edge, okay? And he had a way of, of, of reeling me in and helping me see the practicality of being able to move forward uh, with with purpose, not just with energy, but with purpose. Later on in life, uh, in, in my current situation, there are a couple of brothers in Christ that are older than me and much wiser than me that when I run into situations, I call them. They don't live near me. And interestingly, both of them are named David. So, but, you know, it's a, it's a, that's where I look for that kind of wisdom when I'm, I'm stuck. 
And Jonathan, what? who is your Abigail? Well, my wife, Jewel, is my Abigail. She has Aww. a keen awareness of right and wrong. And Jewel keeps me focused on godly principles. And she's my rock. Uh, she shows great concern for others and is always encouraging. She's my editor in life. For what I'm trying to say, she helps me with that so that I can be understood. And uh, she is wise and beautiful. So I thank God for his gift of my jewel. So is her middle name Abigail? Just curious. It should be. Okay. (laughs) Julie, how about you? Well, I've got three Abigails. My husband, Doug, knows everything that happens to me. So he is extremely patient and listens and he'll offer advice to get me off the ledge whenever that's necessary. But my sister, Lori, is a twin that came seven years later. And when I need a woman's perspective, which generally means more intuitive and perceptive, sorry, gentlemen, (laughs) I can give her every detail of color commentary and she'll listen and she is very blunt and she'll tell me where I'm off base. But even if the affront is real, she'll diffuse it by attributing a higher motive to the offender or by redirecting me to scriptural principle. And for certain issues, I go to Rick who... Rick, you always listen patiently and you validate my feelings and then you gently steer me in the proper direction, but you always give me something to walk away with to consider. You give me homework that is pretty irritating at the time, (laughs) just saying. Um, But talking to one of these three people means I'm not complaining to multiple people who might not respond so faithfully and would instead fuel my anger or my hurt. And this would turn into gossip or possibly slander, yet more sins. So I think it's really important to have and to be able to listen to your Abigail, and I'm thankful for my Abigails, and really I'm thankful for all these lessons that God provides for us. Yeah, you know, the the lessons of David's life have been really, really remarkable, and this is a wonderful way to wrap up this Warrior for God series. You know, and, and, and during these lessons, we have talked about the armor of God. And let's just do a, a quick recap on those pieces of armor of God and how we drew lessons from each piece in David's life. So, so Julie and Jonathan, go, go ahead. with there's, there's six pieces that we want to just touch on here. So our first lesson was when facing Goliath, know the battle is the Lord's. And that's the helmet of salvation. And second, choosing the right friends can save your life in more than one way. With godly friends, you aren't in this alone. And that's the shield of faith. At springtime, go to war, because one sin can quickly lead to another. And that's shoes or sandals. Know how to take care of holy things, because they are blessings from God. The belt of truth. And if you're allowed to build a temple, provide, oh, sorry, if you're not allowed to build a temple, provide the plans and materials for it. Focus on what the Lord is granting you, and accept when the answer is no. The sword of the Spirit. And that brings us to our very last Warriors of God lesson we'll go over. Recognize your Abigail and listen well. That's the breastplate of righteousness. Because Ephesians 6.14 tells us about the breastplate of righteousness. And that word righteousness is where Abigail shined the brightest. She did the hard work and the godly reasoning and brought a righteous solution to David. And he listened. She appealed to David in God's name. She placed the blame on herself for the sake of protecting innocent lives. Abigail showed us the importance of having and living by a standard of righteousness. Not only does the breastplate cover the heart, it also protects our vital organs and moves when we move. Our breastplate is the righteousness and justification of Jesus. It is a weapon of defense 
as the ransom satisfies the just requirements of God and saves us from death. Looking at the offending person from that standpoint of Jesus died for him too, should help us with these little offenses that come our way that make us feel like we are ready to burn it all to the ground like David was. So, you know, when we look at this, this, the story of David, I, and you know what, in the three-part series, we scratched the surface of the story of David. There's so much more, but we see the profound variety of lessons that changed his life, that developed him, that helped him to get ready to be the king of Israel, to be the second king of Israel, to be the one who would replace the faulty one, to be the one who God would prepare from a young age and work him up to what the responsibilities were. were. Was he perfect? No. Did he fall? Yes. Did he get up? Always. And those are the lessons of King David. Those are the lessons that we can take and apply to our own lives every day and say, I too can be a warrior for God. And when we look at Abigail and her wisdom and her reverence and her, her, her humility and her drive to do what was godly, we can take her example and say, I can be an Abigail and I can have an Abigail to help me do the things I need to do. David and Abigail, two tremendous warriors for God and warriors for truth. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, folks, coming up next week, this is important. Here's part one. How should Christians respond to racism? How should Christians respond to racism? We are going to get deeply into a difficult subject. You don't want to miss it. Talk to you next week.